This is episode 527 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In the classic movie Rocky III, we saw our hero going from underdog to the heavyweight champion of the world. And in achieving his goal, Rocky goes through some internal and external changes. For example, no longer is he full of passion for the fight game. No longer is there a lofty goal to achieve, a supreme purpose in his life. Now, as champion, his days are no longer filled with dreams of sacrifice and of winning, but of the fear of losing what he has already accomplished. And this change in him is best described by the words of Mickey, his wise trainer. Mickey says, For years you were supernatural. You had this cast iron jaw. But then the worst thing happened to you that could happen to any fighter. You got civilized civilized. And unfortunately, we could say the same about many, maybe most in the church today. At one time, we were fearless, totally committed, passionate, and full of faith. We were ready and willing to charge the fires of hell with nothing more than a squirt gun in our hand. But not now, not anymore. How do we get out of this mess? How do we go back to the way that we were? The answer Revival. And the keys to revival are found in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So join us as we experience revival and the higher Christian life through the letters written by Jesus as we learn to leave Laodicea behind. Uh, We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 today, but before you get there, I want you to turn to uh, Deuteronomy 13. Haven't begun yet, this is a little introduction, but I want to share with you something that we talked about on Tuesday so that uh, you can kind of get a a better understanding of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, We've been going through on Tuesday night the uh, life of Christ using all four gospel accounts. We're kind of in John chapter 5 right now, and one of the things I really wanted to show over the last couple weeks is how God can take just one verse, one small word, and just sink deep into it and show you some things that maybe you hadn't seen before. The passion of my heart right now is to experience revival, to experience the higher Christian life, and for us as a congregation, as individuals first, and as a congregation, to be prepared spiritually for interesting times that could be coming our way. And so I, was, I shared with them on Tuesday that I was just beginning my Bible reading, not deep study, but Bible reading. And I was in Deuteronomy chapter 13, and I began to read. And it, again, it talks about what happens when a false prophet comes and about apostates and stuff of that nature, the first couple of verses. And then verse 4 hits. And verse 4 is one of those verses that um, it's almost like you just glance over. This is terrible things that are happening, but this is what you need to do. Terrible things that are happening. This is what you need to do, or stuff of that nature. And I I, I was just arrested at this verse. And it's six verbs that lay out for us in correct order exactly what the life of sanctification is all about. If the phrases, the verbs God used were rearranged in any other way, it wouldn't fit. But he knows exactly what he's doing and laid out for us perfectly the the admonition, and then the questions we have, and then the answers to those questions. And here's what it says in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 13. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, and keep his commandments and obey his voice. 
You shall serve him and hold fast to him. How many times have we read passages like that and just skimmed over? Okay. And I stopped and I looked at these verbs. You shall walk is the first one. You shall fear, the second one. Keep, obey, serve, and hold fast. And so here's the admonition. Lord, I want to go deeper with you. I want to... uh, Uh, I want to understand your word more. I want to be able to tell people about my Jesus. I want to be able to capture the fervency that I once had and move into uncharted territories. I want to experience the Christian life. Lord, I want revival in my life to set aside my besetting sins and just reach out to you with with great gusto. Uh, What am I supposed to do? How do I do that? Well, I should walk, first verb, after the Lord your God, but I don't. And I can't. And one of the reasons why is because I don't fear you, which is the next one. To have a, uh, an understanding of who you are, an awe, and a presence of, of, of that. And once I, once I realize I can't walk after him because I have no fear of him, then once all of a sudden I begin to develop a fear of him, then it's easier for me, verb three, to keep his commandments. But keeping his commandments alone without a deep relationship with him becomes the law. So as I'm keeping his commandments and growing in my faith with him, the next step is to be able to hear his voice that we've been talking about for quite a while, and then to obey his voice. And once I'm hearing God's voice and have a fear of him and obeying his voice, then all I want to do the rest of my life is to serve him, which is the fifth verb. And then when terrible things happen, I don't hold on to my own strength, but I cling to him. Six verbs, walk, fear, keep, obey, serve, and hold fast. And I just wanted to share that with you because what we're going to be looking at in the same way is um, how God specifically puts things together to point us in the same direction, which is to have a life of sanctification, to experience revival and be like him. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2. I will pray... And we will get started. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come and, and look at your word and to experience you and to fellowship with other believers, to sing songs together that just extol your greatness and your glory. To, Lord, hopefully experience you in a way that maybe we haven't in a while or maybe never have before. To, to have the Holy Spirit just impute truth to us from the very words of Christ recorded in Revelation. Lord, we're, we're here, we have an expected heart, expecting heart, and we're just asking you to move. But Lord, before that begins, as I always do, I want to ask you to rebuke the enemy, rebuke the devourer, to rebuke Satan, and command that he flees from our gathering. And Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you teach us? Would you become real to us and move us more into Christ-likeness? And whatever happens, Lord, we're going to thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We uh, have been talking about revival for the last couple weeks, which happens to be kind of something that naturally flows from trying to experience the higher Christian life, which um, we, um, uh, we've been talking about for quite a while. Uh, probably this will be close to the last message I'll be preaching to you on revival, because uh, after today, you will have all that you need to experience yourself. The um, teachings of Christ are clear. The flow that we're going to look at are very apparent. 
you'll be able to pick out exactly where you are on the continuum, and Christ will tell you exactly what we need to do to move beyond that. And so after today, I may have one more message on this, and then we're going to go back. What I originally planned doing is uh, looking at the book of Acts and um, others' uh, epistles on how the church, you and I, are to respond during tribulation and trials and tough times. And how we as individuals respond is really based on the condition of our heart, which goes back to revival and back to the higher Christian life and being a faith prepper. But we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. If you remember, revival is defined as a spiritual awakening from a state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a believer. You can have a revival in your love for your wife. You can have a revival in your appreciation of your kids. Sometimes when the burdens of life just kind of bear you down, you can have a revival by realizing how truly blessed you are, and then the temporal pain and punishment and turmoil that we're going through seems small. It works exactly the same way in our relationship with Christ. I'm I'm dry. I'm plateaued, I'm lukewarm, I just, I'm stagnant and dormant, and I want to move to something deeper, maybe like I once experienced it, or maybe like I have never experienced it. As we've talked about, the key to revival, or one of the key to revival is to understand where faith fits in, not faith for salvation, because you cannot revive what's never happened. but faith in who God is and what he says and that his word is alive and active and I'm lining my life up with his word and he can do anything he wants and my God is great and let me, it's a song we just sang, let me tell you about my Jesus who can do all these amazing things. And once our faith is focused on him, it's not that big a step to move from dormancy or slight stagnation or serious stagnation to a point of intimacy and fervency with the Lord. Now, here's the dilemma that many believers have. Here's the dilemma I have. So this is personal for me. And um, I think the best way for me to show this to you is to give you pictures of Rocky and how what Rocky was like in Rocky Three. Everybody's seen the Rocky movies, right? Love the Rocky movies. So if you remember, Rocky, he's just this bum. You know, this bum out of Philly and, you know, through circumstances that that he couldn't control, he got an opportunity to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world. He he talked funny, he slurred his, his words when he talked. He lived in a really nasty apartment, if you remember, had pet turtles. When, when you have this victory scene where he's running through, he's got these sweats that are really nasty and dirty. They're not like from Nike or anything. He's sweating in places you really don't want him to. He climbs up there and does his little victory chant all alone. There's no crowds following him. It's just him and his desire for something better. The classic picture of Rocky, not really victorious, kind of beat up. And then, of course, you know, his wife is not really all that pretty at that time. She's kind of homely, works at a pet store. I mean, it's just Rocky. He's just a normal guy who has an opportunity to do something incredible, and he does. He does. Adrian, we did it. Remember that? Cheering movie, fantastic movie, and okay, kind of like the believer when they first got saved. 
that all of a sudden they're living in the, the midst of sin. They feel alone and they feel separated from Christ. And, and for no, no merit of their own, somehow God speaks to them. The gospel makes sense to them. They yield their life to Christ. And it's like incredible. Like, oh my gosh, I'm really saved. And everything people told me it was like, it really is. God, I'll do anything that you want me to do. Just send me anywhere. I'll tell everybody about Jesus. I'll pass out tracts like crazy. It doesn't matter about me. It matters about you. And we have this fervency for a season. And then we're heavyweight champion of the world. And then all of a sudden, we've kind of involved in church. Things are going really well. And Rocky now begins to change. Rocky three. this is what he looks like. He's um, um, GQ. Nice suits, you know, nice little haircut. Of course, this is 80s stuff. Nice little haircuts. He's enjoying the life right now. I'm not down in the gutter anymore. I'm not really concerned about telling others about Jesus. I'm more concerned about how it's going to affect me. I live in a huge house. I have a huge car. I'm reaping all the benefits of this world and this life right now because I deserve it because I'm heavyweight championship of the world, champion of the world. I deserve it because I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. They make statues of me. I mean, it's a, it's, the world is great. The world is wonderful. And something happens. Something happened to Rocky And something happens to most believers when they become comfortable in their salvation. And in the Rocky movie, it's summed up by my favorite character. I recognize, I relate to Mickey, my brother's Paulie, but that's another story altogether. But uh, I relate to Mickey. And here's what Mickey says to Rocky in Rocky III. He says, for years, you were supernatural. You had this cast iron jaw. Of course, he probably said it more like this, if you remember Mickey. But then the worst thing happened to you that could happen to any fighter. You became civilized. Civilized. He's getting ready to fight Clubber Lang, Mr. T, who's a savage. That's what you used to be, all about everything. But now you become civilized. And it dawned on me that one of the worst things can happen to us as a believer is we become civilized. We no longer serve him fearlessly with reckless abandon. Everything belongs to you. I mean nothing. I must decrease, so you must increase. But instead, it's how it affects me, how it affects my life. You know, what's going to be required of me? What is it going to cost me? What are the demands for me? So what do we do about that? To experience revival is to, you know, this is tacky, but in order to have revival, you first have to have vival. You know what vival means, don't you? Me neither. But anyway, you have to have vival. And vival is like some sort of what I want to be, what I'm not, or maybe what I used to be before I got civilized, and I want to be what I was before so I can experience what I did before and then move on to a deeper intimacy with the Lord to be able to bear more of his fruit. So how do I do that? How do I capture or recapture the intimacy and fervency you once had when you first discovered Christ? And by the way, if you didn't have a fervency or an intimacy with him when you first got saved, I feel sorry for you. 
Because that's the whole point of the Christian life. It's not accepting a bunch of doctrines or joining a church and reciting a prayer and getting baptized and getting a box of tithing envelopes. The point is to have a relationship like you have with your best friend, with your parents, with your your spouse and your children, a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we foster that relationship, get that relationship to grow? How can I experience a personal revival and in doing so, from where we are now, experience something higher spiritually than we are or the higher Christian life. I mean, what's the next step? I'm going to lay out for you the next step. And then, as I said, we may have one more message on this, but uh, there's not really much more we need to know than what the Lord is going to show us. And we're going to look at the strangest book of all to find out how to have spiritual revival. And we're going to look at the book of Revelation. I uh, find in the book of Revelation, for me, the most exciting chapters are chapters two and three because they're the chapters in which I live. Chapters four continuing are stuff that happens in the future. Chapter one is what John experienced, but chapter two and three are the church. It's Jesus, Jesus himself speaking to the church. And if you remember, I shared this with you in great detail. I'm not going to do it again today. How these seven churches lay out for us in advance church history. That they lay out for us exactly what the church is going to be like so that we'll not be caught unawares. We can actually look in these letters and see the times in which we live, see the times that came before us. Unfortunately, since we're living in the Laodicean church age, there really is no time afterwards. And it's an amazing picture of how God did that. If he rearranged these letters in a different way, it wouldn't fit. We've got first letter to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. We talked about what these names mean. He could have sent these letters to different churches. Corinth isn't in here. The church in Rome isn't in here. There's many church in Jerusalem, and Antioch is not listed. He chose these churches in Asia Minor, Minor, not the only churches, but he did that specifically to communicate a cryptic message about the history of the church, in addition to admonitions to those various churches. Uh, Ephesus, of course, means darling, beloved, or loved. Uh, Smyrna, which represents the church under persecution, means myrrh or crushed. Pergamos, we find out, is when the church now gets intertwined with the state. Constantine declares uh, Christianity to be the state religion. Pagan temples are now made churches. It's a mixed marriage. We have, of course, after that, the beginning of the dark ages and then the moving up of the... um, Catholic Church, where Christ's sacrifice was not satisfactory for sins. Instead, you had to have continual sacrifice. You see Jesus not resurrected, but he's always on the cross. You have the church in Sardis, which represents the Reformation, the people who came out of, the Philadelphia church age, the church of brotherly love, of course, which represents the great missionary movement, the Keswick movements, the first, second, and third great awakening that happened worldwide, the preaching of Spurgeon and Finney, Moody and many others, and then, of course, the Laodicean church age, which means the rule of the people. We're in charge. We decide. We decide what church is going to be. We decide how much of our life we give to the Lord. We're totally in charge. I'm not a servant anymore. I'm an employee. We can lay these out chronologically. The church at Ephesus, which meant loved or darling, was the first century church. I'm shocked 
that Jesus had anything bad to say for the first century church. Many of these people, John was alive during this time up until close to the end of the first century, they firsthand witnesses of who Christ were. We have the church of Smyrna, which takes us up pretty much to Constantine's edict. It's a time of great persecution, 10 great persecutions, Diocletian persecutions and, and many others. Pergamos begins, of course, with the, uh, or ends in 606, where we have the um, Boniface III being declared the first pope, and the Catholic Church pretty much begins, takes us all the way up into the Reformation. Then at the Reformation, of course, you've got a, a split there where the gospel was, uh, was rescued, but many other things weren't. And the amazing thing about this, which we won't talk about today, is that from Thyatira on, the order in the very last of the letters change. And so it actually, Thyatira, it, takes, it goes up into the tribulation. Sardis does the same. This is the, Refor- or this is the Reformation church to the tribulation. The church in Philadelphia, and these dates aren't hard and fast. The church in Philadelphia, of course, is a church that was promised not to go through the tribulation period. Those people who adhere to that because of their love of Christ. And then, of course, the present church we're in, the tribulation. The Lord said some good things and bad things about each of these churches. To the church, the first century church, he had good things and bad things to say about him. Church under persecution, only good. The church uh, at Pergamos, good and bad. Thyatira, good and bad. Sardis, only bad. Philadelphia, only good. And the the age in which we live right now, only bad. And again, we can can, uh, look at the prophetic aspects of this at another time. If you look at the headings of your Bible, they say something like this. The Ephesus church was a loveless church. You have left your first love. We find the persecuted church, Smyrna, Pergamos is the compromising church. And if you stay in the compromising church long enough, you now come into the corrupt church. And from the corrupt church, we have the dead church. Notice the trajectory. It's heading down. Then there's an opportunity for revival. And from the dead church, you've got this faithful church, this loving church. And if you're not in the loving church and then and reject that, you end up being where we are today in the lukewarm church. We don't want to be dead, but we don't want to be really alive because it costs us too much. And so we're somehow in this lukewarm area. Now, we've gone over that in great detail in years past. But what is amazing about this is not only does God reveal to us church history, listen very carefully, but he also reveals to us the life cycle of a believer, the life cycle of each of us in our walk with him, from abject fervency to lukewarmness. And during this time, he gives us various opportunities to make a choice. I will either go this way or this way. I'm in the dead church, in the Sardis church, and I have an opportunity to do what it says in the Sardis church, and I can experience the the love and fervency of the Philadelphia church, the great missionary movements, and God doing incredible things in my life, but if I choose not to, I end up by nature in the Laodicean church, where I think I'm doing great. I'm rich, and I need nothing. And the Lord looks at us and goes, do you not realize that you are poor and wretched and blind? And naked. And in each of these, he tells us, tells us what we need to do to get back on track, to experience revival, to embrace the higher Christian life. If you will 
allow me to go through this today, you will see that every one of our questions about how are answered in the, by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in these seven letters. Look with me, if you would, uh, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these things says he who has the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, and then he goes on to say some good things about the church. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Boy, I wish the Lord could say that about us. And then he says that, but there's this huge nevertheless. First the good news, then the bad news. Nevertheless, I have this against you. What? And you just don't love me like you used to. You don't. There was a passion involved in it that is gone. There was a, an all-out fervency for me that you were willing to sell your possessions and, and store up treasures in heaven, that you were willing to, to sacrifice and live together and, and go to just strange places to do nothing but share my word. And now I can't even give, get you to, to drop a track off. You have lost your first love. Lord, okay, I'm not where I used to be. I'm in need of a revival. What do I need to do? What's your admonition to me? Tell me how I need to recapture what I've lost. First of all, number one, you need to remember from where you've fallen. You need to remember what it was like when I was the center of your life. Remember what it was like maybe when you first got saved or maybe when God used you in a mighty way before the cares of this world choked out your fruitfulness. Remember what it was like. And once you remember, repent. Repent. I don't want to be this way anymore. I want, to, I want to repent. But once I repent, what do I do? You go back and do the first works. You go back and do what you did before. You go back and, and do the things that worked versus continuing doing the things that don't work. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the two ways to be successful spiritually? Find someone who is and follow them or find someone who's not and do the opposite. Well, Lord, how can I be successful spiritually? Do what you did when you were successful and quit doing the things that you're doing that make you not successful. Go back and do the first works. And you must repent. Must repent. So there's an assumption here. And the assumption is, okay, uh, if I do repent and I do rekindle my relationship and I realize that in my walk with Christ, that in your particular continuum with Christ, that I have lost my first love. I'm not in love with him as much as I used to be. I'm hedging my bed. I'm, I'm kind of let the world creep in. So what I've decided to do is I'm going to absolutely resurrender my life to Christ. When you do, you can experience what Jesus says you always will. You will suffer persecution, just like he did. I will suffer persecution. And if I do, then the next letter, the church in Smyrna, tells me what that would be like. But if I don't, 
If I say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to give up what I'm doing. I've got a big house I want to buy. And I've, got, I've got those followers and, uh, on Facebook, and I'm now an influencer, and I want people to listen to me. And, and I've got, I got too much to lose by being who I used to be spiritually. So you know what? I'm not. And the first choices were given. A life of surrender leads to a life of persecution. A life of non-surrender leads to a life of of church, of compromise, of looking out for you. First is Sardis, next is Pergamos. Let's look at Sardis. I'm Smyrna, I'm sorry, the uh, persecuted church. Here's what he says. He says, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but Jesus says they're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear those things which you are about to suffer. Doesn't matter what the world does to you. Doesn't matter about losing your job or having friends not like you anymore because this is all designed and you're protected by Christ. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. So for a church or a Christian under persecution who's thinking about quitting, what is Christ's admonition to them? Be faithful. Be faithful. Be steadfast. Do exactly what you're doing that led you to this point where I have nothing bad to say about you but only praise. Well, how long? How long do I stay faithful until death? This is not a, a game. This is not a club membership. This is a life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay faithful until death. And the reward is, I will give you the crown of life. But what happens if we choose not to? You know what? That's just, that's no, that's just too hard. I mean, I was working as a, you know, as a forklift driver in a plant and I gave my life to Christ and it was absolutely wonderful. But since then, I'm now the, the CEO of the plant and I'm making big bucks and I've got a big house and a lot of people. I, just, I, can't, I can't be all about Jesus because if I am, it's going to take away from my position right now in this world. And we forget that the scripture says friendship. That's not agape. It's filio. And a strong affection for this world is enmity, hatred, hostility towards God. And the next verse is even worse. Whoever desires to be a friend, philios, of this world, makes himself an enemy of God. I, uh, I can't really, um, I can't, I, I just can't. Tell you what I will do, though. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tithe faithfully. I'll come to church. I'll go on occasional mission, mission trips. I'll serve on a bunch of committees. But I'm not going to be the kind of person in Acts 5.41 where they rejoiced for even counting themselves worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. First crossroads, we've got persecution. Hold fast until death. And then we've got this compromise that takes place in the church of Pergamos. It's called the compromising church. Historically, this is when, um, in Pergamos, this is when 
um, the persecution had ended, and all of a sudden the Christians decided because the persecution was so bad, we'll adopt pagan symbols, we'll adopt pagan holidays, we'll adopt a bunch of paganism into the church just to get the government off our backs. And so all of a sudden now we're exalted by the government to an exalted level. Constantine now says that, that we're the state church. And so uh, pagan priest, now a Christian priest, and all of a sudden the message became diluted. It means mixed marriages. It's when all of a sudden we bring the world into our own life. That I'm kind of Christian, but I'm kind of worldly too, and I've got this big wall of separation between those two, and never once will I let them bleed over. Well, that's not really true. The world will bleed over into my Christianity all the time, but I don't want my Christianity to bleed over into the world. I have two groups of friends. I have the friends I invite over to my house for the Super Bowl, guys I work with, and then I have friends that I go on mission trips with, and they're totally separate. And my friends I you know, go drinking with in the Super Bowl, they wouldn't even recognize these other guys, and I'm ashamed for the two to meet because I'm living this kind of schizophrenic life, because I've compartmentalized my real life that's important to me that I spend most of my time doing, and my church life over here. And all of a sudden now, my light begins to dim. Here's what he says. He says, I have a few things against you, after he gives them the good news. I have a few things against you. And what you're doing is you're allowing compromise into the church. You're allowing demonic influences into your church. You have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block for the children of Israel, to do things that are idolatrous. And you're doing that in your own life. You also have those who hold to the doctrine of a Nicolaitans, which I hate. And this, of course, are those people who believed in a total separation between clergy and laity that the clergy is spiritual, the rest of us are not, versus understanding that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So what do I do? Verse 16, repent. Repent. There's no other thing to do. There's no holding fast because there's nothing to hold fast to. It's to simply recognize where you are on this slope of compromise, being more like the world than you are like Christ, and stop, you know, drop a... Um, a line in the sand, and repent immediately. But um, what if I don't? What if I don't? I've worked too hard to get where I'm at right now. I mean, um, Christianity is just inconsistent, non-congruent with my work environment. Pretty soon Christianity is going to be uh, not consistent with you even having civil rights in our nation, is going to cost us to become and remain Christians, and, and the cost is too high. So I'd really rather not do that. I've let some of the world in, and I'm kind of satisfied with that, and I'm to repent of all of that and go back, like it says in the, um, the last letter, and do the things that I did in the beginning, but what if I don't? And if you don't, not only... Well, in your own life, you will move from compromising to corrupt. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Remember? Well, that doesn't really apply to me. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. We go from compromising to corrupt. And we find that laid out for us in the church of Thyatira. You'll find this in Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. It is the, uh, 
is the dark age church. It's where this shift takes place in these letters. And all of a sudden, the, um, the he that has an ear to hear, let him hear, are at the end of these letters, rather in the body of these letters, and there's a significant change there. The corrupt church. He says there's some things that he... Uh, that they do well, there's good and bad that's listed here. I know your works, verse 19, service and faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So you're actually doing more than you used to do, but nevertheless, I have something against you. And that is the fact that we've moved from a tolerating false doctrine in the church to actually be involved in the sin result of that. That you've allowed this woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, what, you can't even discern the difference? To teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Sexual immorality and idolatry. A desire for gratifying the flesh and a desire for wealth or riches or whatever it is. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, my judgment will be swift on the corrupt. I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their de- deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. What are we to do? What are we to do? Some people in this church, in this church age, primarily most of them are corrupt. There are a few that aren't. Now I say to you and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put no other burden, but I need you to hold fast what you have, what little faith you have what little desire for Christ that you have. If it's nothing more than just remembering John 3.16 that you memorized in vacation Bible school, hold on to the small little ember of faith in you and hold on to it until I come. I'm not asking you to move forward. I'm not asking you to advance. I'm asking you to hold fast to what you have because what you have, if you don't hold on to it, spiritually as an individual, is going to end up dying. Dying. I'm going to start deconstructing my faith. Why? Because Christianity is just a bunch of rules. And the fact is, now that I've rejected those rules and I see the world in multicolors out there, that I'm succeeding, the world is honoring me, I'm making a lot of money, I have a lot of friends, and all of a sudden, the faith that I did have begins to die. Um, I've known some people who uh, um, used to come to our church and no longer come to our church. They moved They moved far away now, but they left our church and went to a church that was pastored by a woman. And I asked the uh, man several times, why Why are you going to a church pastored by a woman? Because if a woman is a pastor, to quote John MacArthur, the church has no pastor. So why are you doing it? I know it's not right, but you know what? The people there are just wonderful, and I, uh, I just, I just, it just feels like church. The building feels like church. Stained glass windows and all that kind of stuff. And, all right, so we're, we've compromised doctrine and truth for feelings. We had a, uh, another lady that uh, came to our church when we first started. She's since passed on, and her son was a uh, homosexual. 
And so she moved out to California to live with her son. And he took her to the homosexual church. And she was just, I, I, I've been wrong about homosexuality all this time. I mean, they're the most loving people. They're the most giving people. They're just sweet people, far better than any people I've ever gone to church with before. Well, you know, loving and accepting people are also in bars, but that doesn't necessarily make it right. And it was like, it doesn't matter what the scripture says, because it's so easy to get, get moved into our culture, who is heading in so many other different directions, even on gender issues, than what the scripture teaches. True? You take a stand, you're back to suffering persecution. Hold fast what you have until I come in the corrupt church. But what if I don't? What if I don't? What if I just go with the flow? What if Christianity is just something I do and not something that I am? What if my relationship with Christ seasons my life to make it better when I get into a jam rather than being the pulsating center of my life? What happens then? Well, it's really simple. What little we have will die. Our fruit will die. Our intimacy with Christ will die. You'll try studying the word and it's just a bunch of pages that don't make any sense anymore. You'll find yourself getting irritated with, with what the Bible says. You'll search for a church that is more liberal and more liberal so that it kind of lines up with your worldview. And it's this natural progression that we go from, I don't want to suffer persecution by repenting and going back and doing the things I did in the beginning when Christ first saved me and maybe I was closest to him. So therefore, I'm just going to compromise I'm going to get corrupt, and finally I'm going to die. And that's exactly what happens, is portrayed in the church in Sardis, which is Revelation chapter 3. The dead church. This church and the church in Laodicea, the age in which we live, the Lord says nothing good about. Nothing good about. And because there's nothing good to say, uh, he has some rather strong words for it. Remember, the word sardis means those who come out and implies that we have a choice. We can either repent and experience this second revival like the church in Philadelphia, where God only says good things about, or we can refuse to repent and settle down into lukewarmness where my sensibilities have been so numb that I guess I'm okay with my Christian life right now. Not what I used to be, not what I could be, but I'm okay. And you will never experience revival that way. You will never even glimpse of the higher Christian life because we refuse to even be hot like we once were before, not as cold as we used to be, and we're satisfied with lukewarmness. And Jesus has some very strong words to say about that. Our choice presented to us. Here's Sardis. I know your works. I know that you have a name. You, people think you're something. You think you're something. Your wife thinks you're something. Your kids look up to you, but you are dead. Dead. There's no life inside. So here's what you need to do. You need to examine yourself. You need to be watchful. Watch what's going on. Take an assessment of your life and strengthen the things that remain, no matter how small they are, that are ready to die. Why? Because I haven't found your works complete or perfect before God. When you're in that situation where you're dead, you need to sit back and realize, man, I don't want to be this way anymore. 
I need to make some decisions to change my life. If you're, you know, if you've got an addiction, and uh, let's say you're an alcoholic, you know, I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm sick and tired of drinking. I have to make some decisions. And those decisions are, I'm going to have to cut off the things in my life that always fed my flesh. Every Friday night, I get together with my buddies at the bar. I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, I don't have any other friends. So I, I just have to make that decision. Or, or I'm going to go to church. I don't even know anybody at church. Or maybe... Just change who I am. There has to be a, a point in time where you have to strengthen the things that remain. Otherwise, they will die, and it will be over. So what do we should do? I mean, how does that happen? Here's what he says. Here's how you strengthen the things that are about to die. Number one, you remember how you have received and heard. You Remember the heights from which you've fallen. Oh, do you remember when you were spiritually on top of your game? Do you remember when you did experience revival? Remember when you first got saved? Remember what that was like? Yeah, I wonder what happened to that guy. And I wonder what happened to the guy that would come to church and, and bring visitors and people he won to the Lord and couldn't wait to go out and knock on doors or tell people about Jesus. What happened to that guy? Oh, well, he became civilized. And the world began to reward him. So we started dressing like the world, acting like the world, being entertained by the world, bought a big house in the world, a big car in the world. And I just can't be about those things anymore because the world will think there's something wrong with me because I'm all about Jesus. And if I'm all about Jesus, I'll be no earthly good. Remember what you were when you knew him passionately and hold fast to who that person was. And when you see the difference between that person and where you are right now, repent. Repent. There's no way to turn this around other than recognizing your need and repenting. It's the same way with salvation. You recognize that you're a sinner on your way to hell, and Christ, of course, has the parachute, using Ray Comfort's example, and you repent and put on Christ's way. It works exactly the same way in trying to experience revival and restore your relationship to Christ, which I have shared with you ad nauseum. The situations in our world right now that require that of us, and they're only getting worse, only getting worse. So if I repent, then I have an opportunity to experience revival. I have an opportunity to, to, to at least be as close to him as I once was before. I have an opportunity to feel his love and feel his favor. I have an opportunity to live in the next church letter, which is the Philadelphia church letter. And if I choose not to, then I will suffer the consequences of the Laodicean letter to the church, which is the prevailing situation we are in the church today. So what happens if I repent? What happens, like, I know I'll suffer persecution because I've already repented in the church of Ephesus and, and remembered from the heights I've fallen, but what will happen now? The letter to Philadelphia, which, by the way, the Lord only says good things about. I like that. Here's what he says. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door that no one can shut. Oh, God's sovereignty. Thank you, Lord. For you have a little strength have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan 
who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. And most important, to know that I have loved you. God will let the world know that he loves you. Oh, Lord, well, what do I do? Well, because you've kept my commands to persevere, promise, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which is to come upon the whole world. Why? To test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. And what do I do knowing you're coming quickly? You hold fast to what you have. There's no need to repent. There's no need to do penance or whatever we have a tendency of doing. Just hold fast to what you have and don't let the world come and encroach on your spirituality to steal your crown again. You've been brought out of darkness, brought out of the miry pit, set on a rock, stay on the rock. But what if I don't? What if I don't? What if the same questions come up? What if it's too hard. I, you know, I don't want to be all about you, God. I want to be all about me because Laodicean means rule of the people. I want to be in charge of everything. I want to I have total control about what happens. I mean, we have this new disease that's cropped up over the last 15 years called narcissism. That's what I want to be, all about me. And, and it's always been there. It just now has a name. And, but what if I don't want to do that? What if what if I, I'm okay not being all about you, Jesus? I'm also okay about being all about me because I love me more than I obviously love you. What happens then? It's the last letter, the last warning to the church in Laodicea. And it is the most frightening of them all. So it not only lays out for us um, the consequences of being okay with where we are, knowing that Christ is not. He didn't die to make you okay in heaven or to forgive some of your sins. He gave all for us. And what he demands is all back. But if I choose not to do that, what happens? I want you to follow these words very carefully. Verse 14, chapter 3. Do the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write... These then things say the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. I know. The word know there is not gnosko. He doesn't know them experientially. He doesn't place his favor on those works. He just knows about them. He has cognitive understanding of those because they're not really works done for his glory. I know your works. And when I look at you and what you're doing, I say that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were one or the other. If you were cold, there's hope. If you were cold, there's hope. Redemption can take place. You can repent and accept you know, who, who you are and who you want to be. Or I wish that you were hot and on fire for me. But since you are neither and you're lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I cannot think anywhere in Scripture of a more descriptive picture of disgust that the Lord has for anyone. It nauseates me. I'm sickened by the relationship you have with me, the relationship that you claim to have with me. It, it just, it churns my stomach to the point that I, 
literally the word means projectile vomit, that I have to turn and projectile vomit everything in me about you because it just is nauseating. Why? What? Why? Why do you feel that way, Lord? I mean, what have we done? Well, it's really simple. It's because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing including the Holy Spirit, including uh, following God's laws, including the six verbs that I shared with you from uh, Deuteronomy 13. I don't need anything. We can function church just fine without you, Jesus. I got the big praise band. We can have a bunch of music. We can sell millions of, uh, of CDs out there of our praise and worship music. We can do all this kind of stuff like we do at a concert, at church. We can make ourselves feel close to you because we don't need you, God. We don't, we don't need you to help us build a house. We don't need you to, to pray that you'll bring the money. We've got banks and we've got credit cards and we've got debt. We've got everything. We don't need you at all. If ever, ever, I get into a serious jam that I can't work out, I will determine what to do and ask you to bless my efforts. It is the prevailing attitude of, of who we are. But um, God doesn't see us that way. We think we've got it all together. And God says, and do you not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? We have made ourselves enemies of God by making ourselves friends of the world. And it has gotten so much worse in the last 15 years because of social media. I can't tell you how many kids, all they want to be, I just want to be on social media. I just want to have like a whole lot of followers and I want people to think I'm really cool so that they'll sit in front of TV and watch me put on makeup. Really? Really? Producing nothing. Doing nothing. Some of the largest YouTube channels that have multiple hundred million whatever, that's what they do. It's just stupid stuff. We want to watch somebody else living their life. You say, I'm rich, God, I'm wealthy, and I don't need anything. I'm totally self-sufficient, which is exactly the opposite attitude God wants us to have. He wants us to be dependent on him as a doulos, as a slave, because that's who I am. No, no, from your faulty view, don't you realize that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? I'm not only sickened by your claim of having a relationship with me. I am sickened by your devotion because you think you're devoted to me, but you're really devoted to you. And you're okay with that in the spiritual state that you're in. So what do we do? Well, he gives us some very specific instructions when it comes to repentance. He doesn't just say, repent, like some of the other letters. No, I need to help you guys repent and show you exactly how this is done. And he goes and basically lays out for them that whatever you're doing worldly-wise, ask God to give you something to correct it and make it spiritual. I counsel you to buy from me, not from you, gold we find in the fire that you may be rich. The only riches you have is not what you accumulate in this world, but what you accumulate in heaven. And white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. You get those garments from me. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you can see because what you're looking at is totally wrong. 
And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. But the first thing I need from you is to be zealous. Just care. Just get excited about something, anything, instead of just going through life, well, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Get excited, be zealous about something. And if you're zealous about me, repent. How? This is how you repent. Watch very carefully. You know these verses. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In the text here, this is the door of the church. Christ is outside of the church, knocking on the door, wanting to get in. If anyone, number one, hears my voice, and that's only something Christ can do in your life. You spend some time with him, he will tell you what's lacking in your spiritual life. He'll tell you exactly how to correct that. You can use the grid we've used for years to try to determine where you're at spiritually. You can think about past experiences. Have you lost your first love? Have you let the world creep in? Are you more concerned about this world and how it affects you than rather how it affects your family and your children and Christ? When you hear his voice, all you need to do is open the door to him, just like you did in salvation. I realized I was a lost sinner, and I heard Christ's voice. I repented of my sins. I yielded my life to him. I surrendered my life to him. I accepted his word as truth, and he came in and became my Lord. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, then he promises that he will come in. I love this. It doesn't say he rules in him. He dines with him. He has fellowship with him. He has a relationship with him and he with me. And then, of course, this final cryptic phrase that you find at the end of all the letters He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And by the way, churches are made up of individuals, it's churches plural, which means this is for us today. If you have an ear that's in tune to the Spirit, let him speak to you about what you need to do in your own life. So how do we experience revival? Capture the intimacy, the fervency with Christ. How do we embrace this higher Christian life? What's the next step? Exactly what we've learned today. What the Lord lays out for us in these two chapters. So let me hit it with you really quick. Ephesus. You want to know what to do to begin a revival in your life? Ephesus. Here's what you do. Remember, therefore, what you have fallen and repent and do what you did in the beginning. Think about that. You know, I got saved when I was 28 years old. And I remember once I got saved, man, I didn't care about anything. I mean, I mean, literally, I didn't care about anything. I just, I just wanted Jesus. I, man, I volunteered for everything that happened in church. I, man, I came to every single Bible study they had open. I, I enjoyed when I decided to, to go to seminary. I supported my family, just working part-time as a uh, dairy clerk, the midnight shift at a Harris Teeter. I mean, I did whatever I could to do that. I mean, I, I told my brother about Jesus, told my parents about Jesus, told everybody about Jesus. When's the last time you've done that? Oh, years. That, that was then, this is now. I was on fire then. I'm just kind of lukewarm now. Remember, remember from where you no longer have Christ as your first love. Repent and start doing the things that you did in the beginning. Smyrna, be faithful, even in the midst of persecution, until death. 
Because nothing else matters. If your light begins to shine bright, you better believe the enemy's going to try to stomp it out. And I will promise you this, most of the people that will come after you to try to, try to bring you back down are church people. Because they want you to be just like them so they don't feel bad in your presence. Pergamos. Repent. Simply that. Repent. Because if you don't, it's compromising, church. I will come to you quickly, and I'll fight against them and you by the sword of my mouth. Thyatira, hold fast to what you have until I come, because I am coming. And there'll be a time that we'll have to give an account for that. Hold fast, persevere, Sardis, be watchful. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are about to die. Don't want them to die. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Think about what it was like when you were on fire. Hold fast to that and repent. Philadelphia, it's really simple. Realize that he is coming quickly and hold fast to what you have. Don't let anyone take your crown. And then Laodicea, be zealous. Get serious about something. Make it Christ and repent. And once you do, this is what happens. Recognize that Christ is standing and knocking at the door to have fellowship with you, intimacy with you. The holy God wants to come and have fellowship with you, which presupposes maybe some changes in our life. If you hear his voice, open the door and let him come in and have fellowship with you and you with him. And everything changes. Amen? Now listen, this is, this is how to experience revival. This is how to embrace the higher Christian life. What we have to do is determine where we are in these seven letters. What we've gone through, what decisions we've made, what decisions we haven't made, where we are and, and on this continuum of faith, and then decide what we're going to do about it. If you are on top of your game spiritually, if you're experiencing deep wonders with him, if you're closer to him now than you ever have been before, the admonition from Scripture is clear. Hold fast to where you're at until death or until he comes. If you're not, over and over again, remember where you were, repent of not being where, who you were, and go back being the person you were when you were closest to him so you can grow in more Christ-likeness. If you're not having fellowship with the Lord, if your sin doesn't even, you don't even care that it bothers him, then hear his voice. Open the door of your life. Invite him back in by surrendering yourself to him, and he will dine with you, have sweet fellowship with you, and you with him. And then go back and read John 15 about the vine and the branches and the great gift we have by having him living in us. I've been in church my whole life, my whole life, and uh, I've never, ever seen as much chaos and callousness and hurtful things as going on in our world right now, not just in our nation, but worldwide. I mean, it's so clear that the coming of our Lord, or at least the trials and tribulations that bring our nation and our world to a point where after the rapture, people are actually willing to give their sovereignty to a single man, has, has never been as strong as it is right now. I mean, we see all this stuff going on in, in Canada 
We see how it's totally ignored by the media. We see the lies that are going on. No Western government has condemned what's going on over there. I don't know if you follow it. I follow it religiously. Um, it's coming to our shores. The caravan begins, uh, supposed to end up in Washington on March 1st, around the time of the uh, State of the Union address. The National Guard has already been alerted in uh, Washington. I mean, it's, it's, these, are, these are really, really strange times we're living in right now where federal government can decide by the signing of a pen to uh, uh, close your bank accounts because you're not actually participating in the protest, but you supported them who did that. You sent 100 bucks, and now your bank account can be shut down. It's crazy times in which we're living. And that's okay. doesn't matter if you're absolutely sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not, it's going to catch you unawares. It's going to bring fear into your life and you're not going to have the faith to say, no, I'm not willing to stand for Christ. I'm going to compromise in order to keep my job or live in my house or have a bank account or credit card or whatever's coming. It's here. And more than ever, ever, we need to take serious the higher Christian life, the stuff they taught in the Keswick movement. We need to take serious our desire for revival in our life and follow the admonition not of George Mueller, but the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ in his seven letters to seven churches to remember where we were, to repent, to go back to where we were, and then move from that point, that point onward. If you're already there, hallelujah. Grab a couple people and tell them how you got there. If you're not, all of us can, can benefit from growing closer to him. Amen? Let me pray.